So I am Compliance Week's data and research journalist, which means I'm the dedicated case study writer. And in between working on those long-term projects, I'm also CW's book review writer. I moderate at some of our events. I'm the survey reporter and an occasional writer of columns. And This is Tom Fox, and I would like to welcome you readings and felicitations. In this podcast series, I'm going to be visiting with thought leaders, entrepreneurs, historians, and a wide variety of other people on topics that are outside the area of compliance, but are of great interest to myself and to listeners to the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, we conclude a special two-part episode with Allie McDevitt, writer at Compliance Week, on her recent case study on ransomware. Greetings and Felicitation is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Well, let's move to Chapter 2, Part 1. Uh, you touched on the theme, one of the themes of this one a little bit earlier, which was who are the hackers, where you talked about ransomware as a service, or as a um, friend of mine said, you go to the Tupperware party and you pick what you want. Um, so that was uh, Part 1. But the, the other part, and being a process guy, of course, what struck me was the playbook and how the playbook had everyone's roles. And then the CEO actually had to depend on everyone to do their roles. So I was wondering if you could say a few words about uh, the hacker because or hackers. It seemed that we had additional information uh, come out in the story as we progressed through the week. Uh, which maybe changed our perception of the hacker or hackers, but also why this uh, cyber incident response playbook was so critical in this story and the roles uh, in the cyber response, uh, cyber incident response playbook. So hackers. So I mentioned earlier, basically anyone can be a hacker now. I'm probably one of the most tech illiterate people going. And now I know I, I could do it if I wanted to. All I really need to be able to do is get on the dark web, pay a service or a subscription fee, and that ransomware as a service operator will give me all the tools that I could possibly need. So um, I thought that was a really interesting fact that I didn't know of prior to my research, and, and that was given to me by an ethical hacker, Jose Ramos, who told me that. But I think you're talking about how there are certain tells with hackers, um, certain calling cards, I think they're called... Um, TP, TPPs um, or PPTs. And uh, basically, if you're working with a seasoned expert, like someone from the FBI or potentially an incident response firm, like a ransomware negotiator, or digital forensic examiner, they're going to be able to tell whether a company is dealing with a rookie or a professional just by looking at how long they were lurking on your network the ransomware variant that they're using, uh, the style of the splash screen, because some of the splash screens will be have certain calling cards on them uh, based on other companies' experiences with the same cyber criminals and things like that. So um, in, in this case, in the fictitious case, I didn't want to get too, too specific in who the hackers could be um, but I wanted there to be enough information to imply that this wasn't their first rodeo. Um, and then as far as the cyber incident response playbook, that was something that I came across as I was doing 
research on electrical companies specifically because my fictitious company was a utility company. And this was something that um, was recommended the companies take on board. So a physical book or a binder that will include everyone on the cert. So their names, their job titles, their roles in the incident response, um, phone numbers, all contact information, and then any potential alternates. And it's recommended that this be kept offline, but if you do put it online, just make sure you've, you're doing it securely. And then I, oh, sorry, you go ahead. Once upon a time, I was asked to prepare an emergency response plan for the law department for the corporation I worked in. And I went around and got, they told me get contact information, emergency contact information, and everyone gave me their spouse's or partner's number. I said, look, if we can't reach you, we're not going to be able to reach them if it's a true emergency. Give me your mother. Give me your mother-in-law. You know, give me your dad. Give me your sister. And and we're going to, and then the second lesson I got from that was keep it physically. Because, you know, as you said, if you're offline, you may not have, have access to it. And so I was really struck by, you know, you uh, the book. I would have just called it the book. But it's a physical thing that somebody or hopefully multiple people know where it is so that they can access it when needed. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you could either lose access to it or the attackers could gain access to it. That's the other risk that you run by putting it online. I think you also asked, you know, who is handling which aspect of the incident response. And I asked everyone I interviewed this question and they all came back with roughly the same answer that, it's really going to depend. It's a collaborative effort. You know, you have people in compliance who are probably looking up regulations that need to be attended to. You have um, legal looking over aspects, um, you know, for example, data breach notifications in, in this company's case. They're going to be looking into that. They're going to be working closely with the communications experts who are writing up any um communications to go out to stakeholders make sure that they're staying within the bounds of what's legally permissible. You know, everyone handles a different aspect of play because it's all happening at the same time. So now let's turn to a question that uh, I'm always thinking about, which is how and when should stakeholders be notified? In full disclosure, I was part of the Equifax breach, as many people were. Uh, and it just irritated me to no end that they sat on that information literally for months. Now, perhaps that was a different time when things were different. And as we're recording this in March of 2022, the Biden administration is suggesting that uh, for public companies, it may be a four-day notice period. Under GDPR, it's a 72-hour notice period. So um, the compression of time may be uh, come from the regulatory side. But it also strikes me as other than the decision to pay, this may be one of the most difficult decisions. So what did you uh, come out with on the issue of stakeholders being notified and, and how should that notification be made? Absolutely. I interviewed three people along these lines. Two were communications experts and then one was an anonymous line level employee. And that was probably one of my favorite interviews. So I, na- I, I named him Melvin in the case study, just to give him a memorable name. But this was a real person who was an employee at a company who experienced a ransomware attack. And similar to what you were saying with Equifax, um, they did not notify employees of 
what occurred for months and months and months. The, the whole com- company shut down for 10 days. And during that 10 day period, no formal communications came out from leadership about what was going on. They were left completely in the dark. And then this employee find out, finds out, you know, um, nine months down the road that their personal data was leaked, could be on the dark web, could have been sold. Um, and he or she lives with that, you know, evermore, basically. Um, and the consequence of that is that there were some class action lawsuits that came out from employees following that. The company eroded the trust of its employees, um, lost a lot of the loyalty to it. And I think that could have been avoided by just communicating a little bit sooner. So the communications experts that I spoke to said that you really want to prioritize two stakeholder groups, employees and customers, but especially employees, because this is something that Evan Roberts told me who is a communications expert, that if you communicate with your employees, they're going to become invested in the recovery process. They're going to feel like they're part of that and that you're in it with them. Um, And they'll just trust you a little bit more. So I guess what people struggle with, people on the cert um, in that high leadership position who have that bird's eye view is knowing how much to communicate and when, because it is an evolving crisis and you don't necessarily know on day one of a ransomware attack how bad the damage is going to be and what has been taken. Has data been taken? Has it been exfiltrated? Has it been leaked? You don't know all that up front and that takes time to ascertain. So uh, the experts that I spoke to said, you know, you want to get communications out to all your stakeholders. That includes employees, customers, the board, obviously, business partners, vendors, even the media. But it's up to the company to decide, you know, the priority list of who to communicate with and when. And also the communications experts should be hand in glove with legal to make sure that what they are saying is within the bounds of what's legally permissible. So now let's turn to, not perhaps, but the most difficult decision, and that's into whether to pay or not pay. And interestingly, you didn't give an answer, at least a definitive answer. What you gave was a couple of different alternatives. So I was wondering if you could maybe walk us through the pros and cons of both, because you leave that open-ended, and for me, that made it uh, even more intriguing. When I got to writing this section of the case study, I didn't have a definitive answer because there really is no good answer. I mean, as one of my interviewees said, uh, chief compliance officer said, you know, it's they're all bad options and you're just trying to figure out the least bad option. So I looked at other companies in the media who had gone on record saying that they had paid a ransom or maybe they hadn't gone on record saying they had paid a ransom. And I looked at the looked at the fallout of their experiences, and I tried to blend what I found into this fictitious company's um, parallel hypothetical experiences. So in the path A, uh, the company decides to pay the ransom. I think that it was path A. 
and there are some pros to this. The obvious one is that if you pay, chances are um, that the cyber criminals will, to some extent, hold up their end of the deal. And the reason for that is because if they didn't, the business model would not work. So they have to hold up their deal to some extent. Uh, the cons are many. So you are at risk of recurring victimization if you decide to pay. And I've heard of this before. Um, I spoke I spoke to a chief compliance officer who confirmed this for me that, you know, his company paid a ransom and then they were hit up two or three more times with other ransomware attacks. Because once you've gone on record that you are a payer, there's a target on your back that, you know, you'll pay. So there's that. Um, plus, of course, if you're paying a cyber criminal, you're bankrolling their enterprise. Uh, you're potentially getting yourself into hot water with OFAC, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, because if it turns out that you paid someone you shouldn't have in terms of a blocked individual or an entity on an SDN list, then you can get fined for that. And that's whether or not you knew who you were paying. Uh, pros of not paying is flip the script of what I just said. So you're not complicit in the criminal enterprise. Um, the cons of not paying, you know, if any sensitive data was stolen and leaked, then of course you're going to be opening yourself up to lawsuits um, for, you know, data breach notification laws, um, that kind of thing. Um, and then you have to consider the protracted cost of recovery, any reputational damage, although you're probably going to experience reputational damage either way. Decision or not, I guess the other thing that I wanted to ask is, did you talk to any company that made the decision not to pay and were able to successfully kind of restart their business or recreate the data or get use of the information that had been hacked or is basically everybody pays. It just depends how much. No, I, I didn't talk to anyone myself um, at a company where they chose not to pay. I did find a company that chose not to pay and I sort of modeled path B of the report where the company cho chose not to pay based off of this company's experience. And um, in that case, they had waited as we're not going to pay because only a small number of employees' personal data was leaked. So they made that cost, you know, they weighed that cost benefit analysis and decided we would rather just not pay. And then what we can do instead is, um, you know, send out our apology and, you know, take the fall in, in other ways. Um, I guess that's as good as I'm going to get. Now let's go to uh, chapter four, uh, which was key lessons learned. And I've detailed some of the lessons I've seen throughout this, but maybe I thought we could start with uh, uh, some of the themes or lessons uh, you were consistent lessons you saw companies uh, uh, board, or are there any lessons that uh, general lessons that you might uh, impart for us? And I'll tell you about my thoughts on Betty. Yeah, I really did like what Joseph Blunt had to say. I listened to his whole video in front of the Senate committee after Colonial Pipeline's ransomware attack in the spring of 2021. 
Um, and, and they did go on record saying that they paid the ransom. But I really liked his takeaways because I thought they were honest. Um, you know, respond immediately. Be transparent with your stakeholders. Don't be afraid to come forward to law enforcement. These were th three things that I think came up again and again when I did speak to experts. Um, and I think that there, there might be a common misconception that you shouldn't involve the FBI right away. I, I wrote that into the story because um, I think there is some sort of stigma there that exists because, of course, the FBI's official stance is that you don't pay a ransom. But there are so many more advantages to involving uh, law enforcement than there are to leave them in the dark. So um, I thought his lessons learned were were very succinct and very relatable to any company. I was troubled by Betty. I was troubled by Betty on a couple of different levels. One is um, when I was in the corporate world, if I received training, um, now I was in the legal department, so, you know, I'm a hyper nerd, geek, all of those things. But my thought was, if it's important enough for them to think they need to train me on it, it's important enough for me to learn it and listen. And we had one training on the dangers of radon gas leaking from fireplaces. Well, I lived in Houston, Texas, and nobody had a fireplace. And I had no clue why they were making me learn about the dangers of radon gas at home. But so if it's important enough, they think it's a safety issue, I'm going to listen and I'm going to learn. And, and so first of all, um, we could talk about the effectiveness of the training she received, but I really faulted her for not paying attention because that's the way I read it. Uh, I don't fault her for making the mistake, initial mistake, but I was very irritated by her response. And as you said, it wasn't one mistake, it was a series of mistakes. And if she uh, hadn't tried to hide it and then compound her mistake, uh, the company could have been in a much better position. And that's where I really faulted her. Now, whether that was because um, the company had no speak up culture, they had a, you know, you speak up, you get fired culture. Uh, my fear of my father's ire ended a long time ago. And if I'm in for a, asked you and I'm going to go get it um, because that's what you have to do sometimes. So that part that those actions by her really troubled me. And it made me think that this could happen in other areas. Obviously I write and talk about anti-corruption and fraud. Well, if, if she stumbled upon something like that, would she raise her hand and speak up? If she tr uh, stumbled upon a safety issue, would she raise her hand and speak up? Uh, and so that that part really troubled me, and um, I'm not sure I would have terminated her, but I would have had a very long conversation with her that she's got to speak up, that we, own, we the company, only works if we all work together, and I didn't see her working together with the rest of the company. So that part obviously troubled me um, as well. The, the thing I, I took away from from the whole series, Allie, was, as I've said several times, be prepared, but have the processes in place to respond. And part of that is me growing up on the Texas Gulf Coast and having gone through hurricanes, 
Uh, I understand there are critical responses to getting your business back up line. And the key to every one of those is having a plan in place and practicing that plan. So uh, I thought those parts were great. I also liked the CEO character because it really in, let's see, parts two, yeah, part two, it almost, she turned it over to the people on the cyber incident response team. And, and she had to depend on them to do their jobs, which every CEO has to do. You're only as good as, as the team around you, but you really drove home the message that they had a role, what their role was. She was the CEO and ultimately the decision was hers, but she was relying on some pretty expert people who were well-trained in what they were supposed to do. So um, I got some leadership lessons out of that one that I, that uh, I enjoyed as well. So uh I really enjoyed the series. I thought there was lots in there. I talked early on about the psychological aspects. You, you actually had a little, I don't want to say text box because it was much more than that, but a whole section on the psychology of that. And I was really intrigued by that. The negotiator, what they did, uh, and lots uh, for us to think about in this. So kudos. Thank you. Thank you so much on the feedback. I appreciate it. So uh, we're uh, getting near the time, our ending time, but I was wondering any hints of anything upcoming from Allie. Yeah, I can give you a teaser. Okay. Uh, So my next case study, I can tell you the topic is going to be diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. So how you successfully embed DEI practices into the DNA of a company. And I think this time I'm probably going to try to go back to my uh, traditional format where I spotlight one company that's doing a really good job at this and um, talk about what processes they've put in place to affect positive change, what kinds of obstacles to anticipate as you, you know, endeavor to make these changes and then um, how you set goals and benchmarks to measure tangible progress. Well, uh, now we are at the end of our time, Allie, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted more information on yourself, Compliance Week, or hopefully to check out the ransomware case study, what would be the best way for them to do so? So you can check out the ransomware case study at complianceweek.com. There's a whole case study library, and you can also email me directly. And my email is allison.mcdevitt at complianceweek.com. That's Allison with one L and a Y. Uh, Well, I greatly look forward to your next uh, case study, and I hope that I could invite you back uh, to talk about it after it goes live on Compliance Week. I would love it, and thank you so much for reading it. That concludes part two of a two-part podcast series with Allie McDevitt on her case study on a ransomware attack. We're going to link to it in the show notes, so I hope you will check it out. Also, if you haven't done so, please sign up for Compliance Week 2022, the conference from May 16 to 18 in Washington, D.C., this year at the JW Marriott. I hope to see you there.